Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Yes, we are back and we are back because of donors who give at ParadoxGiving.com. Thank you so much for your generosity. Today we are looking at the story of King Ahaz and King Hezekiah. And this episode is entitled Hezekiah's Hope. In today's sermon, we are going to discuss the lives of two kings. The first king is David's distant descendant, King Ahaz, and the second king is Ahaz's son and successor, King Hezekiah. For a little bit of context, 300 years passed between the first day of David's reign and the first day of Hezekiah's reign. For some perspective, we will celebrate America's 300th anniversary on 2076. So when you think of this story, consider the gap between George Washington and whoever will be the president in 56 years. That president in the future is the equivalent of King Hezekiah to King David in this story. Now, King Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, reigned for a little over 15 years in the 8th century BCE, while Hezekiah wore the crown for nearly 30 years. So with all of this information in mind, let's dive into the story of King Ahaz, which is told in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. We read, King Ahaz reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his ancestor David had done, but Ahaz walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now, this may be a little confusing to read today, but when we read it, it's important for us to remember that when this story takes place, Israel and Judah are separate nations. 200 years before the reign of King Ahaz, his ancestor, Rehoboam, which was also David's grandson, sat on the throne. Shortly after Rehoboam received the crown, the people of his nation asked Rehoboam to abolish the practice of slavery. Rehoboam refused. Instead, he swore that he would expand the nation's enslavement of men, women, and children in an effort to build a stronger economy. Not surprisingly, Rehoboam's political platform of enslaving everyone was not well received by everyone. <laughs> Therefore, 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel seceded from the Union and formed their own nation to the north named Israel. Rehoboam, however, continued to reign on the throne of Judah with its capital city of Jerusalem. Now, fast forward 200 years after that split, and the nations of Judah and Israel are still separate and sovereign nations. At this point in their history, they have made a couple of alliances, but the overwhelming theme of their narrative is one of terrible civil war. When King Ahaz assumes the throne, these nations are in the height of a violent and bloody conflict between their nations. So when we read 2 Chronicles 28, that King Ahaz of Judah walks in the ways of Israel, which is his enemy, that is about as low as the author of Chronicles can go to describe the moral bankruptcy of King Ahaz. After all, imagine that in 2076, on the 300-year anniversary of the United States of America, that the press unanimously described the President of the United States as, quotes, walking in the ways of the Confederacy, close quotes. Those are the words that can only be used if you are talking about the worst kind of president. And that's the words 
that the author uses to describe the worst kind of king, which the author uses for King Ahaz. Now, it's important for us to remember that the author of Chronicles is writing all of these words sometime around the year 350 BCE. This means that 400 years have passed between the life of King Ahaz and the time that these words were written by the author of Chronicles about King Ahaz. This is significant because it means that the author of Chronicles already knows how this story of King Ahaz will end when he writes, King Ahaz walked in the ways of Israel. So when he starts this story about King Ahaz and he tells us that King Ahaz is abhorrent, then you and I can easily anticipate that things are about to spiral out of control. And my word, do things ever spiral? In chapter 28, verse 5, the nation of Aram attacks and defeats a portion of King Ahaz's nation of Judah. They take several prisoners of war with them back to Damascus. In that same verse, Judah's old nemesis, Israel, continues the civil war that's two centuries old at this point, and they attack Judah from the north. According to the author of Chronicles, King Ahaz and Judah meet a heavy defeat at the hands of Israel with great slaughter. How great was this slaughter? We read, quote, King Pekah of Israel killed 120,000 in Judah in one day, all of them valiant warriors, because they had abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Now, King Pekah of Israel also took prisoners of war from Judah. Verse 8 reads, The people of Israel took captive 200,000 of their kin, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much booty from them and brought the booty to Samaria, the capital of Israel. In just one battle, King Ahaz loses 320,000 people. 120,000 are killed, and the remaining 200,000 are taken as prisoners of war. Aram and Israel absolutely pummel the neighboring nation of Judah. And just when we think that Ahaz cannot possibly take any more, the hits keep on coming. In verse 17, we read, The Edomites had invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. For Judah, there are now three nations, three wars, and three defeats. Can you imagine what the national morale in Judah is like after losing to the Edomites, their third military loss in a row? I mean, things can't possibly get any worse, right? Well, that's wrong. Because the verse continues and says, And the Philistines had made raids on the cities in Shephelah and the Negev of Judah, and had taken Bet Shemesh, Ajalon, Geradath, Soko with its villages, Timnah and its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they settled there. The text tells us that while King Ahaz is on the throne, four different nations mercilessly attack Judah from four different sides. Israel from the north, Aram from the east, Edom from the south, and the Philistines from the west. All of these surrounding nations defeat Judah in battle. The national morale of Judah during Ahaz's reign is at an all-time low. Judah is completely and utterly dejected. Judah's cities are under the rule of other nations. Judah cannot negotiate a treaty, an alliance, or a peace with another nation no matter how hard they try. 
And every time Judah goes to battle, I imagine there is an ominous sense that they will lose. King Ahaz and all of Judah are frantic for any kind of help. And in their desperation, Ahaz goes for broke and offers what little money he has left to the biggest military superpower of his day, the empire of Assyria. We read these words, For Ahaz plundered the house of the Lord and the houses of the king and of the officials and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. <laughs> the text tells us that this tribute to Assyria did not help Ahaz because Assyria heard Judah say, Hey, Assyria, help us. We are on the brink of destruction. And Assyria, being an empire, thought to themselves, The brink of destruction? Well, why don't we destroy Judah and take whatever they have for ourselves? And with that, Assyria began to plot how they would eventually destroy Judah. The author of Chronicles describes Ahaz as being overwhelmed with distress at this point. Because, you know, he's managed to tick off the biggest and baddest military in the 8th century BCE. <laughs> Shortly after this blunder, but before Assyria arrives, Ahaz passes away. Ahaz led the nation of Judah for 16 years. And according to the author of Chronicles, his legacy is one of ineptitude. In particular, Ahaz is completely inept at two things. One, he is inept at foreign policy. And two, he is inept at military strategy. For 16 years, the people of Judah weathered the storm of ineptitude from their head of state. And now that Ahaz is dead, they are broke, they are weak, and the empire of Assyria is sending messengers that they need to be prepared to surrender to Assyria or they will be destroyed. Quite simply, the people of Judah are in the depths of despair in 715 BCE, the year when Hezekiah became king. Now, if you have ever felt like 2020 CE is a terrible year, like things can't possibly get any worse in 2020 than they are right now, and then tomorrow happens, and lo and behold, tomorrow is even worse just because it's the year 2020. Well, if you feel that way, then 715 BCE is your spiritual annual sibling. To explain what I mean by a spiritual annual sibling, let's assume that you believe in an afterlife. I invite you to imagine all of humanity in heaven sitting around an epic bonfire. After a while, you start talking to the person next to you, and that person asks you in conversation, Hey, uh, what's the worst year that you survived on earth? You then launch into a kind of laughing, kind of crying recount of what happened in 2020. And this person that asked this question listens with great empathy. They allow you to finish. But after you finish, they say to you, oh, you think 2020 was bad? Well, let me tell you about 715 BCE. That person then describes in detail what 715 BCE was like for them. And you say the phrase, no way, about 172 times as they recall what 715 BCE was like for them. As this person is telling the story of 715 BCE, they kind of laugh and they kind of cry 
And then they say 715 BCE was the worst. And after a few moments, you realize that you really like this person that's telling you about this terrible year and that you might be friends because you are now bonded by the fact that you both endured years when the suffering just would not stop. Well, that's what I mean by 715 BCE is our spiritual annual sibling. Once we can see that, we then can start to lean into this story. Because this story is about what people did when they experienced a hellacious year here on earth. And maybe, just maybe, this, maybe this could be a good story. And maybe this good story might be able to offer some wisdom for us in the year 2020. So in 715 BCE, the people of Judah are living in the depths of despair. Their king, Ahaz, dies, and they crown a new king, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who is just 25 years old. In the first speech after his coronation, Hezekiah audaciously says to a weary people, My sons, do not now be negligent, for God has chosen you to stand in God's presence, to minister to him, and to be God's ministers, and to make offerings to God. In other words, Hezekiah tells his beleaguered people, Hey Judah, you know what I have? I have hope. Now how do you think that speech was received by the people of Judah in 715 BCE? I picture people responding to Hezekiah by shooting back, Oh, you have hope, Hezekiah. That's adorable. Because I'm not sure if you are aware of this, Hezekiah, but Assyria, the most powerful empire in the region, is planning a military campaign against us right now. And by the way, Hezekiah, they might continue, don't you remember? We've lost four battles in a row. We don't stand a chance against the Assyrians. Where do you get the nerve, Hezekiah, to stand up in front of us on the first day in office and say, Judah, you have been chosen for this moment. I picture Hezekiah's speech being met with eye rolls, with sneers, and with great skepticism. But here's what's important. Hezekiah refused to be deterred in his hope because he went about his life and his reign believing one of the most unlikely things imaginable. Hezekiah believed that Judah could beat Assyria. This is almost laughable to say out loud. You know, because Judah doesn't have money. Judah doesn't have a military. And here's Hezekiah saying, I think we can take him. <laughs> this idea that his tiny nation of Judah could and would prevail against the strongest army in the land is what Hezekiah somehow held on to. And over the next several years, Hezekiah governed over Judah with the conviction that they could beat the Assyrians very close to his heart. We read these words, Hezekiah planned with his officers and his warriors to stop the flow of the springs that were outside of the city in case of an Assyrian siege. And then we read in the text right after that planning that his officers helped him. So now Hezekiah not only believes that Judah can prevail over Assyria, he now has his officers believing this crazy idea as well. 
Not only that, but Hezekiah laid out a grand vision of engineering and commissioned his laborers to dig a massive tunnel. This tunnel ensured the people of Jerusalem that they would have access to running water if the Assyrians showed up and placed the city of Jerusalem under siege. Now, when you combine this tunnel with the plan to dam up the fresh water around Jerusalem, where the Assyrians would be, this combination becomes a major tactical advantage for the people of Jerusalem. And all the way back in 2010, I had the opportunity to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem. I must tell you, it's a remarkable feat of engineering. But even more so, it's a remarkable feat of vision casting. Hezekiah got all of his people to dig a massive tunnel with the conviction that Judah could somehow, some way, <laughs> take on the empire of Assyria and win. This tunnel is a physical manifestation of Judah's hope from 2,700 years ago. And I had the privilege and honor to stand in the shadow of that tunnel and see the work of their hope. Now, this tunnel alone was not enough to beat the Assyrians, and Hezekiah was not done. We read in the Bible, Hezekiah set to work resolutely and built up the entire wall that had been broken down and raised towers on it. And outside it, he built another wall. He also strengthened the millow in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. So Hezekiah rebuilt and reinforced the defensive wall around Jerusalem. He also started a mass production of defensive weapons in preparation for a siege. Now, all of these people who worked on the wall and crafted the weapons had to be pulled out of the depths of their despair and into the heights of their national hope. But even after all of this work had been done, Hezekiah himself was not done. Because for 14 years, Hezekiah continually attempted to negotiate a peace with Assyria. He is creative, he is committed, and he is ultimately believing in diplomacy over and over again throughout the book of 2 Kings. And so for 14 years, Hezekiah woke up every morning and told the people of Judah, I know that things look grim, but we are not done. I believe that we can beat Assyria. 14 years, day in and day out. Hezekiah continually offered hope to the people of Judah. But this hope was also built on action and required the people of Judah to do something with their hope rather than passively accept their fate. Every day for 14 years, the people of Judah prepared for a siege at the hands of Assyria which is exactly what happened in 701 BCE when the nightmare became a reality. Assyria, led by King Sennacherib, marched on Jerusalem. Assyria then surrounded the city and placed the metropolis under siege. Imagine living in Jerusalem during this time. No matter what wall you went to or what direction you looked, whenever you gaze out beyond the city, all you can see are rows and rows of Assyrian soldiers. And all of these soldiers were just waiting for you to starve to death so that they could conquer your city with ease. 
With that kind of anxiety in the air, the king of Judah quickly acts. We read, Hezekiah appointed combat commanders over the people and gathered the commanders together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to the combat commanders. Hezekiah said, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid or dismayed before King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and all the horde that is with him. For there is one greater with us than with him. With King Sennacherib is an arm of flesh, Hezekiah said. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Now that, my friends, is a speech. Eat your heart out, William Wallace. This speech is so good that when the people of Jerusalem, who have lost four battles in a row and are currently surrounded and outnumbered by the Assyrian Empire, respond by feeling encouraged by the words of King Hezekiah. Encouraged? How on earth do you feel encouragement when you are under siege? Well, there's only one way that you can feel encouraged when death is at your doorstep. And Hezekiah took the throne 14 years before he gave this speech that encouraged the people of Jerusalem. Over those 14 years, he did everything he could to prepare for an Assyrian evasion. Not only that, but he got the people of Judah involved, and they approached this daunting situation thinking, you know what, we're probably going to die, but we're going to do everything we can to give us a chance to live. After 14 years of digging tunnels, reinforcing walls, strategizing, and mass production, the people stopped feeling despair and started to feel hope. Hezekiah inherited a demoralized people, and he said to them, you know what I have? I have hope. And for 14 years, the people of Jerusalem overwhelmingly responded, and we have hope too. They say this in 701 BCE, while Assyria is trying to starve them to death. And I have to tell you, I get emotional when I read this story in the Bible. I mean, this is what leadership is, right? This is what hope is supposed to be. The people of Judah have no reason to feel even the faintest pangs of hope. But here they are, believing that their story isn't over, despite the empire surrounding them. Now, before we go any further in this story, we need to pause to remember that Hezekiah's leadership and the character of the people of Jerusalem moved from a terrifying amount of despair to an overflowing amount of hope. This is a remarkable accomplishment, and it is a testament to the resilience of the human spirit. And while we celebrate this accomplishment, we can't celebrate it for too long because, you know, Jerusalem is under siege from Assyria. And even though the people of Jerusalem are all happy and hopeful now, they're about to die. Which is why you and I will not believe what happens next. After an unspecified amount of time under siege passes, we read these words. Then King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, prayed because of the siege and cried to heaven. 
And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So King Sennacherib returned in disgrace to his homeland of Assyria. And just like that, the Assyrian siege is over. Against all odds, Judah wins. And Judah is convinced that the reason they won is because God intervened on their behalf. And who can blame them? <laughs> if you lived in Jerusalem in 701 BCE, you would think the exact same thing. One day you are under siege by the Assyrian Empire, and then the next morning you wake up and they are all packing up and heading home. If that's not a miracle, then how else would you explain the Assyrians leaving? Now, if you've been with us at Paradox before, you know that we encounter stories like this all the time in the Bible. The Bible is filled with stories about God intervening in the human battlefield and giving victory to one side to ensure that God's will is enacted here on earth. So it's easy for us to dismiss the story of King Hezekiah and King Sennacherib and place it in the category of the other battles in the Bible, like the Battle of Mount Zemaraim, the Battle of Rephidim, or the Battle of Jericho. But let me tell you something. To put the story of the Assyrian siege in the same category as those other battles would be a colossal mistake. Because unlike those other stories, we have archaeological evidence that this story of Jerusalem being under siege historically occurred. The Bible tells us the story of the Assyrian siege from Judah's perspective. But we also have a record of this story from the Assyrian perspective. In the British Museum, there is something called Sennacherib's Prism. And it was authored by the Assyrians, and its intent was to record history. Now, archaeologists date this cylinder back to somewhere around the year 690 BCE, or just 10 years after the siege of Jerusalem occurred. This is rather stunning because the siege of Jerusalem was recorded in Chronicles nearly 350 years after it occurred. But this cylinder is only 10 years after it happened. Now on this cylinder, we read about a plethora of cities that Sennacherib first placed under siege and then eventually conquered. We read on the cylinder about how Chaldea was surrounded and conquered, how Joppa was surrounded and conquered, how Sidka was surrounded and conquered, and so on and so forth. After reading this pattern over and over again, we finally arrive to the city of Jerusalem. The cylinder, written from Sennacherib's perspective, brags, quotes, like a caged bird, I shut Hezekiah up in Jerusalem, his royal city, close quotes. But here, the cylinder breaks from the pattern established in the record. And the cylinder does not mention at all that Jerusalem was then eventually conquered. Instead, the cylinder moves to the next exploits and conquests of King Sennacherib. So both the prism and the Bible verify that Assyria placed Jerusalem under siege. Both the prism and the Bible verify that Assyria never conquered Jerusalem. Both the prism and the Bible verify that Assyria lifted the siege. 
and both records, unsurprisingly, claim victory in their own way. Now, between these records, as well as several other archaeological verifications, we can say with a great level of certainty that these historical facts happened. The first one is that Jerusalem was surrounded by Assyria in the year 701 BCE. The second fact is that then Assyria decided to lift the siege before conquering Jerusalem. Now, what would cause Assyria to just pack up and allow Jerusalem to live? Some historians believe that the Assyrians got dysentery from the contaminated water. I've seen other historians posit that mice invaded the Assyrian camps and spread a highly contagious and deadly disease, forcing the hand of King Sennacherib to lead his people back home. I've also heard people of faith insist that an angel intervened on Judah's behalf, as the biblical record suggests. But the fact is, none of us really know why Assyria left. And in regards to the siege of Jerusalem, we don't know for sure what happened, but we do know for sure that something happened. <laughs> and this, this is really interesting to me because this story is about the closest we get to having a miracle in the Bible confirmed by archaeology. Well, except creation itself. Other than creation, this story of the siege of Jerusalem is about the closest we get to having a supernatural miracle confirmed by archaeology. But while we are unsure if an angel actually intervened and stopped the Assyrians, or if mice showed up and spread a deadly disease among the Assyrians, there is a durable inspiration in this story that transcends time and speaks to us in our despair in 2020. Because Hezekiah found hope in a hopeless situation. Hezekiah believed that Judah could beat Assyria. The question that the story of Hezekiah leaves me asking today is, how do we hope in a year filled with despair? To answer that question, I want to talk about the summit of human achievement in the year 2020, which is, of course, season 16 of The Bachelorette. This year's Bachelorette is a woman named Claire Crawley. And Claire, at 39 years young, is the oldest bachelorette in the show's history. This is one reason why the tagline for this year's show is, quotes, it's about time, close quotes. The second reason that this tagline was selected is because this is Claire's fifth, yes, fifth, time being on a bachelorette show in an effort to find the love of her life. You know the old saying, if at first you don't succeed, try, 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 and then try again to find love on a reality TV show. Anyways, due to the pandemic, this season takes place in a bubble with strict testing and isolation. The bubble that the producer selected was at La Quinta Resort in Palm Springs in the middle of July of 2020, which is why everyone is sweating all the time in the show. Now, on the first night, Claire met all the guys that would be vying for her heart over the next several weeks in the boiling bubble. But when she first saw a man named Dale step out of the limo, the whole contest was over. She immediately turned to Chris Harrison and said, I think I just met my husband. And from that moment forward, Claire zeroed in on Dale. She skipped all of the formalities, and after just two weeks, 
She told the viewing public and Chris Harrison that she was ready to dump all the other guys who were still contestants on the show The Bachelorette and solely commit to Dale. And this is exactly what she did. Claire dumped 15 men at the same time on national television. She told them that she was in love with Dale and only Dale, and that she would be leaving the bubble, the show, and all of them. After breaking up with 15 men at the same time, Claire then walked out of the room. After her departure, high comedy ensued. All 15 men who were just dumped together started telling each other and the cameras about their own personal devastation. I laughed out loud because these guys maybe spent 22 hours collectively between the 15 of them with Claire. However, they all acted like they had just gone through a divorce with their spouse that they had been married to for 17 years. My favorite comment was by a contestant named Blake, who, with tears in his eyes, said to the other contestants, When I found out The Bachelorette was Claire, I bought a book on dementia and Alzheimer's to understand what she was going through with her mom. I fully dove in to make sure that I could potentially be the fairy tale ending if I got there. Why did I invest so much and not get anything in return? I love this existential question from Blake. Why did I invest so much and not get anything in return? One of my favorite things about this quote is that Blake never mentions whether or not he read the book. He only mentions that he bought the book. Now, what reaction do you think King Hezekiah might have if we could transcend time and have him listen to Blake's loss on investment from the book that he bought for Claire? I assume that Hezekiah would laugh in his face and then say to Blake, you call buying a book on Amazon an investment? How much did that cost you, Blake? $14.99? How about this, Blake? Try investing 14 years of your life into your own unlikely survival. Then, and only then, be prepared to ask the question, why did I invest so much and not get anything in return after your city is destroyed, your family is dead, and you are buck naked on your way to Assyria as a prisoner of war. Because, Hezekiah would continue, remember Blake, we had no guarantee in Jerusalem that we were going to beat the Assyrians. All we had was the hope that we might be able to beat them. We spent 14 years trusting that hope, living in that hope, and walking with that hope. That's the kind of investment that we, the people of Judah made in 715 BCE. I point out the contrast between King Hezekiah and Blake Moines because both of these stories teach us about hope and despair. Blake finds someone attractive, but before he can even go on one date with her, she's in love with another man. Blake immediately falls into despair. He questions his life choices. He wonders why the world can be so cruel and he begins to think that he will never find love. What Blake Moines teaches us is that despair is the easiest and the laziest option. Anybody can do despair. Anyone can be cynical. Anyone can easily stand up and say, everything sucks. 
but hope, hope requires something different. We ask the question, how do we hope in a year filled with despair? And if we are to take a lesson from the story of Hezekiah seriously, we know that all of Judah's survival stems from Hezekiah's conviction that begins with the belief that Judah can beat the empire of Assyria. If you are listening to this podcast and you are feeling overwhelmed with despair, the very first step in your journey toward hope is to begin with a strong conviction of hope. Now, I could stand up here and tell you about my personal convictions of hope, but I'm telling you, they won't help you. This is something that you have to believe from the core of your own being. Now, if you adopted one of my convictions, you may try it for a week or two and then say, this doesn't work, and then run right back to the easiest path of despair. Instead, you need to spend some time asking yourself, what hope can I hold that is worth spending a lifetime to pursue? This question then leads us to the next step of how we can hope in a year filled with despair. Because Hezekiah truly held a strong conviction of hope, but then every day for the next 14 years, the people of Judah woke up and put that hope into tangible action. After we have our convictions, we can live with hope instead of despair by making a daily commitment to acting on that hope for years to come. The story of Hezekiah teaches us that hope requires a coordination of the mind and body. We must passionately believe that there is something good about our existence. And then we must also put that belief into a daily action to work toward what it is that we hope to be true about the universe. This is the wisdom of Hezekiah's story. Holding a strong conviction and then turning that conviction into action. This is the testimony of the people of Jerusalem who survived in 701 BCE. And this is how we hope in a year filled with despair. So if you are struggling with hope and feel yourself overwhelmed in this year filled with despair, then I'd like to talk to you about step one of this two-part process. My friend Casey recently re recommended the singer-songwriter John Lucas to me. John Lucas's work took my breath away. His songs have the depths of crafted sermons and the beauty of vibrant paintings. On his newest record, the opening meditative track invites us further in with John Lucas's lyrics, we walk in the garden, we walk in the garden, we walk in the garden, though we know it not, though we know it not. In preparation for this sermon, I emailed John Lucas and asked if he would be willing to share the inspiration behind his song. He graciously wrote back to me and told me it was about a mystical experience with God that he had while he was in Thailand. He wrote to me these words. When we begin to see the face of God within all, when we see the holiness of the soil and all that has been, we begin to move differently. I believe that we are not created separate from God as many are taught, that we need to find a path to salvation and wholeness. Instead, I believe that we are already without reserve one with God, and salvation is the awakening of this knowledge. I think that this salvation is a daily choice to see God in all, in those that we love, 
in strangers, in enemies, and in ourselves. Most days I utterly fail to see, but sometimes I know I have caught the face of God, that I am transcending time and the divisions of my ego and this earth, and that I am walking with the Creator in the cool of the morning. To my friends, if you are struggling to find hope this morning, may I invite you to take a silent walk in the morning through a garden. And while you walk through that garden in the cool of the morning, repeat to yourself, God is here in this garden. God is here in this garden. God is here in this garden. Look at the trees and the squirrels and the dirt and the views and see how all things in the garden are connected. How all things in the garden are one. And how all of the garden exists to be experienced by your senses in a fleeting moment that we call the present. Because if we can begin to walk through a garden in that way, then we can begin to believe that this is a good world and that it is good to be alive. In my sanctified imagination, I picture Hezekiah waking up in the morning and going through a walk every day through Jerusalem. This walk takes place before the city is really alive with the hustle and bustle of the day. And with each passing step, Hezekiah looks around at the structures, the history, and the culture of his people. And he thinks to himself, God is here in this very city. God is here in this very city. God is here in this very city. This mantra inspires Hezekiah to believe that Jerusalem isn't done yet, that Judah will somehow prevail against Assyria. And with that conviction in his heart, Hezekiah then spends the rest of his day building that hope into reality. So here we are in the year 2020, with a pandemic raging, racial injustice and inequality abounding, a homophobic Supreme Court that is in power, and a political party that seems completely fine with a demagogue being in charge. The path of despair is the easiest and laziest path. That path is the path of least resistance. But I think the best thing that you and I can do is to take a walk every morning, wherever we live, and look at creation all around us. And as we are walking on that morning stroll, we whisper to ourselves with each step, God is here in this year. God is here in this year. God is here in this year. We then return to our work, to our lives, and to our day, putting that conviction into flesh and blood action. And maybe, just maybe, that action will lead us to a miracle, much like the miracle that Hezekiah experienced 2,700 years ago. And that miracle will be overflowing with justice, peace, mercy, beauty, and love. May we eschew despair May we hope courageously 
And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, in the garden, in the city, and in this year.